0: Well, Welcome to the Virginia Historical Society. I'm VHS President Paul Levengood. And as always, I'd like to thank the Richmond Times-Dispatch, whose support helps make the Banner Lecture series possible. It's hard to imagine America without George Washington. He was the essential man who won the Revolutionary War, and he was the founding president of the Republic. So it's appropriate that we have a Banner Lecture on Washington this year. And today I'm delighted to say we have as our speaker the preeminent historian of Washington and his times and of his place in our history. John Furling has written widely on the age of the American Revolution. In setting the world ablaze, he contrasted Washington, Adams, and Jefferson. Another book presented a political history of the era. It was called, appropriately enough, A Leap in the Dark. Two years ago, many of you probably heard him speak about his last book called Almost a Miracle, The American Victory in the War of Independence. Now he has drawn on his unsurpassed knowledge of that era to provide a provocative new portrait of the greatest of the founders. The book is called The Ascent of George Washington, The Hidden Political Genius of an American Icon. We are incredibly fortunate today to know that we are the first venue to hear him speak on his new book, which only hit bookstore shelves on Tuesday. And of course, you'll have a chance to buy a signed copy of the book in the shop after the lecture. Dr. Furling was educated at Baylor University and West Virginia University. For many years, he taught at the University of West Georgia, but in 2004, he retired. Luckily for us, he retired from teaching, but not from writing. So I'm very happy to say also that today's event is another collaboration with our co-sponsors, the Society of Colonial Wars in Virginia, and I thank them. A number of representatives, Ramsey Richardson and Peter Broadbent, are in our front row, and I thank them for helping us make this lecture possible. So please join with me in welcoming Dr. John Furling, who will speak on The Ascent of George Washington, The Hidden Political Genius of an American Icon.
1: Well, thank you very much. It's, uh, it's wonderful to be back in Richmond and back at the uh, Virginia Historical Society. I flew up yesterday from Atlanta and actually came over and worked uh, in the reading room yesterday afternoon. When I was here two years ago, uh, I learned of a collection of letters left by a Virginia soldier in the Revolutionary War, and I wanted to take a look at, at those letters and uh, had a very good experience reading those uh, those letters yesterday. So it's a delight to to be back uh, again. W- when I was uh, working about ten years ago on the uh, book uh, "A Leap in the Dark," which is a political history of the Revolution, uh, I kept running into references uh, that Washington was uh, above politics, that he wasn't, uh, uh, that he was disinterested. Uh, that he was non-political and um, I began to say to myself that that doesn't sound exactly like the Washington that uh, I'm encountering Uh, but then I went on and I wrote the uh, book on the Revolutionary War, Almost a Miracle and again as I, I wrote that book I kept running into instances of Washington Uh, making decisions that had at least political ramifications, and in some cases, I think, uh, decisions that reflected his own personal uh, interest. And so I began to think in terms of maybe I want to take a look at Washington uh, as a politician. And that's how this book, The Ascent of George Washington, began, Uh, a, a look at Washington and politics, because we don't remember this too often any longer, but before the Revolutionary War, he was a member, a politician who was elected about 15 times to the Virginia House of Burgesses, and he made political decisions there. He made political decisions during the Revolutionary War, and certainly did as President of the United States. And then, as the uh, as I proceeded with the research on the book, uh, I also became intrigued, as the subtitle of the book indicates, uh, with the notion of how Washington became an American icon. When and where and how did that that uh, happen? So those are really the the two major themes of the book deal with Washington as a politician and Washington as an American icon. And uh, I puzzled over some way to get to that in a talk that will only run about 30 or 35 minutes today. It's difficult to to summarize a 300-page book in that, that uh, length of time. And so, what I decided to do <clears throat> was talk about Washington as a leader, and I think I can pull those two themes together uh, in the course of that in In the Valley Forge winter of seventeen seventy eight George Washington became an icon, um, I think really for the at the first moment. Uh, in that winter a newspaper referred to Washington for the very first time that anyone is aware as the father of his country. And for the first time, too, Washington's birthday was celebrated in February of 1778 as a public celebration. Although in that instance, the celebration was orchestrated by his rather sycophantic Uh, artillery commander Henry Knox who made some of his men go out and parade in the snow in front of Washington's headquarters so I'm not so sure how heartfelt that um, that celebration of his birthday was but beyond a doubt 21 years later when Washington passed away in December of 1799 there can be no question that the country was grief-stricken over the loss of Washington and a bit anxious, too, because there were many people who wondered whether the country would survive without uh, Washington. After all, he had led the country to victory in the Revolutionary War, and he had helped direct the new government through some very difficult waters uh, following its creation in the 1790s. When Washington died, there was a public... Uh, there was a ceremony rather at Mount Vernon, and then there was a mock funeral in Philadelphia, which was in its last weeks as the national capital. Um, and the Congress declared February 22nd, 1800, as a day of national mourning. And we know that more than 400 cities and towns all across America. Held funerals, uh, mock funerals, memorial services um, on for Washington, and we know that at least three hundred and fifty eulogies uh, were given at on those occasions because that many uh, eulogies have survived. And in those eulogies, I think there are several themes, but two themes really stand out. One theme is that theme that I mentioned earlier that Washington was disinterested, that he was above politics, and that Washington made decisions only in the interest of the United States, never with any other uh, ax to grind. Uh, And the second theme that stood out in those eulogies played on the notion of Washington as a leader. Washington was, said uh, one eulogist, uh, a type of man who was so august that he caused educated men in his presence to tremble and sink unnerved. And many spoke of Washington as what they called the American Moses, Like the original Moses, Washington had led the United States through the wilderness to victory and then to its new government under the Constitution. There is no question, I don't think, that that Washington was a leader. But as I began working on this book, uh, I puzzled over what makes a, a leader, And I I discovered that there are innumerable books out on leadership. Uh, And, in fact, only last Sunday in the New York Times, I noticed that the vice chairman of Walmart was interviewed. And the very first question uh, that he was asked was, what makes a leader? And his answer was, you have to look your employees in the face and convince them that you are working on their behalf. Unfortunately, the journalist who did the interview didn't ask him how he brought that off, so we don't know. And that was one of the problems, I think, in most of the things that I read on leadership. I came away from that thinking uh, that I could define a follower pretty easily, but defining a leader was more difficult. Uh, And I also discovered that I wasn't the only one that puzzled over that. John Adams puzzled over it, too. Adams had the misfortune of being president between George Washington over here and Thomas Jefferson over here, both of whom uh, were much more successful leaders than John Adams was. And so Adams gave it a great deal of thought. But the only thing that Adams could come up with was that height made the leader. (laughs) And even that didn't make very much sense because in the last few months of Adams' presidency, one of the great leaders of the 19th century came to power across the sea, Napoleon Bonaparte, and he wasn't particularly tall. But at any rate, it is difficult to define leadership, and I came away from my thinking about it uh, pretty much in the same position as the Supreme Court justice who said uh, you can't define pornography, but you know it when you see it, and I think that's true with with leadership as well. So there's no question in my mind that Washington was a leader, and I want to try to get at uh, why he was, was a leader. In a sense, he kind of reminds me of the Marlon Brando character in the movie On the Waterfront. If you've never seen that Oscar-winning movie, go to Blockbuster or somewhere and and rent it and read it. And there's a scene in there where Brando plays uh, a washed-up boxer named Terry Malloy. And he was apparently a pretty good boxer, and he might have gotten a title fight, and he might have gotten to be champion someday. But Terry Malloy's brother was in the mob and got to Terry Malloy and persuaded him to throw a fight. Uh, And once he threw the fight, his career went in the tank. And there's a great scene in that movie where Terry Malloy and his brother, played by Rod Stagger, are sitting in the backseat of a limousine. And Terry Malloy, or Brando, says to Rod Stagger, Uh, if I hadn't thrown that fight, I could have had a fight at an outdoor stadium. I could have been somebody, he said. Well, my Marlon Brando imitation is not very good, but I think Washington was like Terry Malloy or Brando in the sense that he wanted to be somebody. From a very early age, he wanted to be somebody. But those people who were somebody in Washington's time were leaders. And the question for George was how did he become a leader in order to become somebody? Uh, I loved a line that the, the late columnist Mar- Molly Ivins uh, used one time in describing George W. Bush. He was born on third base she said. In other words, he was born to wealth and privilege. But to carry the, the baseball metaphor a step further, Washington was born with two strikes against him. Because when George was just entering adolescence, his father, Augustine, died. And when his father's life stopped, the money stopped coming in. And that meant an end to George's formal education. And it meant that unlike his older stepbrothers, he would not be sent to England to complete his schooling. Not only did George have little formal education, but he received only a modest inheritance. The lion's share of the inheritance went to those older brothers who came from their father's first marriage. George was from Augustine's second marriage. George inherited a, a pretty much a, a worn-out farm called Ferry Farm just outside of Fredericksburg. He wasn't impoverished by any stretch of the imagination, but it's unlikely, given those two strikes against Washington, that we would have ever heard of Washington today. He might have become known around Fredericksburg. He might have become a justice of the peace or something uh, there. But probably uh, only someone who is into genealogy or maybe um, a professional historian who would come to a place like the Virginia Historical Society and do research might notice George Washington, but probably wouldn't give him very much Notice. He really would not have been somebody in the bigger sense of the word. But uh, Washington's, one of Washington's older brothers, Lawrence, who was about 10 years older and who had soldiered uh, in an oddly named war called the War of Jenkins' Ear, a war between England and Spain that broke out in 1739. The Americans were asked to raise Uh, a force of about 3,000 men to contribute to that war. Virginia raised a force that uh, was called, again, an odd name, Gooch's Foot, named after the governor of Virginia, and the word foot meant that it was an infantry unit that was raised. And Lawrence served in that, and he came home uh, something of a hero. The fact that he got home itself was rather rather odd because this turned out to be a bloodbath for the American colonist who fought in that war. But he made it home, and um, he was clearly somebody who cut a rather spectacular figure, at least for a young George who was only about 12 years old when he met him. Here was a guy who was wearing a military uniform, who stood out, and to whom some very wealthy, very powerful people in Virginia deferred because he had been a soldier who had fought in the Caribbean and in South America during that war. Lawrence was the one that inherited Mount Vernon. In fact, he was the one that gave it his, the name, naming it after an Admiral Vernon that he had served under during that war. And George, who lived about 50 miles away, started going to Mount Vernon as frequently as he could uh, to be in Lawrence's company and to be in the company of other influential people who came to Mount Vernon. And Lawrence also married into the most powerful family in the northern neck of Virginia, the Fairfax family. They owned a plantation called Belvoir, that was so close to Mount Vernon that you could actually see it through the trees during the wintertime when the leaves were off the trees. And so George began going to the Fairfax uh, mansion as well. And I think, and and this is supposition on my part, I, I would be the first to admit, I think when Washington was in the company of these powerful people at Mount Vernon and Belvoir, he studied those people very closely. Uh, I think he uh, noticed how they behaved. He listened to what they said. He watched to see how they comported themselves. He noticed how they dressed. He discovered what they were reading and what they were talking about. And he noticed their body language and how they responded to others. And I think that became um, a crucial factor. What Washington learned there became a crucial factor in shaping his makeup. We also know that young George read something called Rules of Civility. It was a set of aphorisms that had been put together by French priests in the previous century. And in fact, Washington didn't even own a copy of that book. He got a copy from someone, we don't know who, and he wrote out uh, scores of those aphorisms in his own handwriting. So we think he probably studied them very very carefully. And many of the aphorisms were the kinds of, of things that you would see, uh, maybe you wouldn't see them in etiquette books today, they're pretty common sense don't spit in public, don't scratch your private parts in public, and that sort of thing and apparently, George took those lessons uh, to heart, but it it also uh, gave instructions to treat your inferiors with dignity and I think Washington certainly learned from that. We also know that washington's favorite play, a play that he saw. In adolescence and again repeated times throughout his life was a play Cato about the uh, Roman Republican. And it was a play that emphasized that Cato became a great man because he was willing to make sacrifices in his life because of his tenacity, because of the courage that he exhibited his ability to show restraint, and his ability to control his emotions. And we think that Washington probably learned a great deal from that. Well, Washington may have hoped to become a leader, and he may have even expected to become a leader, but he had to do something in order to get to a status where he could be somebody. And for someone with Washington who had little money um, and little education, there were really only two ways for serious upward mobility. One was a very slow way and that was to become a surveyor. It was in fact the way that Thomas Jefferson's father had chosen. Uh, Thomas Jefferson's father Peter Uh, when he was Washington's age, had just about as much money and just about as much education. But by the time he was in his 40s, Peter Jefferson owned thousands and thousands of acres and uh, about 150 slaves. He was a wealthy, powerful man who was elected to the Virginia House of Burgesses. So that was one way of doing it, though it was a painfully slow way Uh, if you were lucky and succeeded. The second way was to become a soldier like Lawrence. And if you were lucky, if you survived, and if you became something of a military hero in the course of your soldiering, then that could make you somebody almost instantaneously. So which of the two did Washington choose? He chose both. He began as a surveyor because there was no war going on. He was 16 years old. Uh, He read and studied surveying on his own. And I think there's some evidence that uh, the Fairfaxes employed a number of surveyors who were running lots of surveys, many of them over in what is now West Virginia, the eastern portion of West Virginia, And Washington, I think, probably learned from those surveyors and accompanied those surveyors. So he becomes a surveyor first, but then when the French and Indian War broke out, Washington turned to a soldier. In fact, he didn't just turn to a soldier, but at the ripe old age of 22, he became a colonel in the in Virginia's army and the commander of Virginia's army, and he would command that army for five years, longer than any other colonist commanded any other colonial army during the French and Indian War. So, what can, can what can we say about Washington's route to to becoming somebody? Well, there was some luck involved. First of all, Washington was the right age. He was born in 1732, and he was, as it turned out, the right age for all of the epic events in his lifetime. He was 22 when the French and Indian War broke out, 43 when the War of Independence broke out, 57 when the Constitutional Convention was held, and 59 when the first presidential election was held. Had Washington been born 10 years earlier or 10 years later, he probably, he may have participated in some of those events, but he would certainly not have held the exalted position that he did. Washington also was fortunate to survive, to get to be an adult. And that sounds rather odd to say, but in the 18th century, nearly one-fourth of all Virginians died before they reached the, their 21st birthday. The South, Virginia, probably not as bad as the low country down in the Carolinas, but it was bad, was an area where fevers were prevalent. And a great many young men and young young boys and young girls never made it to adulthood. Washington experienced diseases, including smallpox. He was lucky enough to survive that in his late teens, and he survived uh, two rather debilitating and serious um, camp fevers during the French and Indian War. Uh, Also, uh, Washington's rise may have been facilitated Uh, By what John Adams said, maybe the gift of height did have something to do with it. Washington grew to be six feet, three inches tall. This was a time when the the median height for American-born men was five feet, seven inches tall. And for Europeans, and a great many, probably a third or more of Americans were European immigrants... The median height for European-born uh, men in the 18th century was five feet four. So Washington at six feet three literally towered over those people. Today the median height for men is five ten. If you go into a room uh, and everybody in there is five ten except one guy who is six feet six. Whose eye are you going, is, is, who are you, is your eye going to be drawn to? <coughs> I may need to get a glass of, of water, I think. So. <coughs> oh, there is. Yeah, I see. Okay. <coughs> Excuse me, I've been battling allergies down in Atlanta this spring. So Washington, I think, literally stood out because of his height. But he also had some other physical attributes (coughs) that were important. (coughs) Many people uh, provided descriptions of Washington, and the descriptions focus on his blue-gray penetrating eyes, they said. Many said that Washington stood ramrod straight. He had perfect posture. Many spoke of how Washington walked in an elegant, fluent uh, manner, almost as if he was being swept along. Many described Washington as the greatest horseman of his age and remember uh, uh, one of the olympic sports today is the is a, an equestrian sport so we still think of it as athleticism and certainly in the 18th century a good horseman was regarded as a great athlete washington always dressed fashionably in fact uh he was frequently designing Uniforms. He designed the uniform for the French, for the Virginia regiment and the French and Indian War, and he designed the uniform worn by uh, the general officers in the Continental uh, Army, along with the sashes and ribbons and whatever that they that they wore. Washington was was rather quiet. He said little. He seemed to be grave and thoughtful if not unapproachable, to the people uh, who were around him. Uh, I think probably my guess is that that's maybe a habit that Washington fell into at Mount Vernon and Belvoir around other people. He may have said the wrong thing early on and decided that the best thing to do was not to say anything but simply listen. And I think it became probably a lifelong habit on his part. And many people spoke of Washington as being polite and uh, well-mannered. So those were all factors, I think, in Washington's leadership qualities. But there was something else. Washington was a, a person who studied. He studied not only others, but he studied himself. When I was teaching... I was always exhorting my students to read more about George Washington and at least try to model themselves on Washington in the sense that Washington was introspective. He wanted to know more about himself. He wanted to know what his weaknesses and his faults were and what his strengths were, and he wanted to uh, mask those weaknesses and accentuate his strengths. But he wanted to know about others, too. He not only studied those people at Belvoir and Mount Vernon, but in 1755, when he was an unpaid aide on the staff of General Edward Braddock, the only British officer, the first British officer that he had studied under or served under, he studied Braddock very closely, looking for his strengths and witnesses, Uh, weaknesses, and he wrote them out. Over here on the one hand, he said General Braddock was brave, he was generous, he was disinterested. He used that term disinterested, meaning that he made his choices based on what was best for the British Army and the men uh, with him. But over on this side, he listed Braddock's weaknesses. Braddock was prejudiced, he said. He didn't treat all men uh, similarly. He had a volatile temper. He was rude. And above all, at least in my mind, he said Braddock failed to disguise his weaknesses. So Washington, I think, studied uh, people, but he also read some. And in fact, when he was... Uh, With the the British Army in 1755 as a Virginia soldier, I find it rather striking that a number of British officers, mostly young lieutenants and captains uh, in the regular British Army, loaned Washington their military manuals. Those were the first military manuals that Washington had ever encountered. And he read them, and I think it's not only important that he he read them and tried to learn about leadership um, through those manuals, but I find it interesting that those officers loaned them to Washington. They must have seen something in Washington, something that told them, here is a guy only 22 years old, 23 now, but with a potential to be somebody and we're going to try to help him in whatever way uh we we can. And in fact Washington I think all along as a youngster did have a facility for impressing older powerful men. There's something uh, that uh, that they see in Washington that's very difficult for us to grasp. So I'm going to show you some some illustrations here in about 5 minutes or so. And uh, most of them you'll be familiar with. And in most of them, Washington looks pretty lifeless. It's difficult to capture what makes somebody tick and what makes somebody a leader uh, on canvas. So you have to get at it, I think, through some some other way. But he clearly impressed people. Uh, the governor of Virginia uh, was impressed enough with Washington, as I said, to make him the commander of the Virginia Army when he was 22 years old and had no military experience. Well, Washington uh, does command the Virginia Army, and uh, when when his service was over at the end of 1758, he had accomplished what he wanted to achieve. The forks of the Ohio had been taken. The French had been driven out of what Virginians called The Ohio country, what we would generally think of as Ohio, Indiana, and Illinois today, Washington left uh, the Virginia Regiment and uh, married and became a planter at Mount Vernon. But before he left, his officers wrote out a tribute to Washington. Many of these officers were older men who had ser- had soldiered before and had more military experience than Washington. So uh, I think it's rather interesting to, to read what they say. I think for the most part that it was what they said was heartfelt about Washington, though I do know that one of the men who signed the tribute later on was quite critical of Washington, as an officer in the Virginia regiment. So it's always it's one of these dilemmas that historians face. What What was the motivation? Were these guys just hitching their wagon to Washington Star and figuring that he was a comer who was going to be powerful, and they wanted to plug into that? Or did they really mean what they said? I think most of them probably were genuine and meant what they said. At any rate, here's what they praised Washington for as a leader. He was industrious, they said. They said that he punctually observed his responsibilities. They said that he was impartial and that he rewarded them on the basis of merit, that he never buckled under the pressures of command, that he did not shrink from making difficult decisions, that he was a man of honor, which I, by which they indicated that he was good for his word, that he had a passion for glory. I find it interesting that they thought that that was a virtue, a passion for glory. And they said that Washington was extraordinarily courageous. And I don't think anyone can study Washington without reaching the conclusion that he was the most courageous of men. I left what I think is the best for last, however, because it's one that I'm not sure what they meant. They praised Washington for what they called his openness of soul. Think about that and roll that around, his openness of soul. What did they mean by that? Did they mean that Washington sort of bared his inner thoughts to them? I can't believe that. I don't think George Washington ever bared his, in, his innermost thoughts to anyone except perhaps Martha, and she burned all of his letters, so we don't know uh, what he might have, have said there. So I'm not sure what they meant by openness of soul, but I think, and it's purely guesswork, I think that what they were probably saying was that Washington was willing to listen to them. He was a leader who listened. Maybe he didn't accept everything they said, but that he listened to them. Only one time that I'm aware of Did Washington ever lay out his formula for leadership? Early on, the first year of the War of Independence, he got a letter from a young Virginia colonel named William Woodford, and Woodford asked Washington for his guidance in becoming a leader. And Washington wrote back with a set of suggestions that I think would serve any leader in any field, not just a soldier. Washington said that a good leader required nothing unreasonable of his officers and men, that he rewarded and punished according to merit only. Avoid prejudices as a factor, he said categorically. Listen to complaints, and if justified, correct the problem. Be plain and precise in your orders. Do not be too familiar with your subordinates, and keep a paper trail. Make copies of every uh, written of every order that you issue in a written form. Well, Washington left the Virginia Regiment. He comes home, as I said, in January of 1758 to Mount Vernon, which is now his. And let me pause here, and this would be a good point to look at some of the illustrations that I've brought along. It's only going to take about five minutes or so. But as you look at these, see if you're struck, as I am, at least with most of them, that um it's difficult looking at these paintings to get a feel for washington as a leader this is the first uh portrait of washington that was made it was uh, painted by charles wilson peel at mount vernon in 1772 so it's about he's 40 years old it's 3 years before the war of independence Peel had a a knack of painting every one of his figures looking rather paunchy, and uh, Washington looks that way, too. I doubt that he really was that paunchy. That's his uniform that he designed for the Virginia Regiment. This is another Peel portrait, and it was painted after the Battle of Princeton in January of 1777, Washington has just scored his first great victory in the Revolutionary War, and he strikes kind of a jaunty pose uh, there. Maybe I'm going to be successful after all, he almost seems to be saying, after the disasters of the previous six months. This is uh, a painting by John Trumbull and Washington's grandson, uh, George Washington Park Custis, who lived with Washington quite a bit in the 1790s and eventually would uh, build the mansion uh, that we now call the the uh, uh, Custis Lee Mansion that overlooks Arlington Cemetery, uh, said that he thought Trumbull, of all of the artists, best captured Washington. And you notice in, in this portrait that Washington is not paunchy at all, and in fact, when Washington was 50 years old, he weighed, and it's the first time that that we know of that he weighed. And he weighed, he was, he was a guy six feet three inches tall, and he weighed 200 pounds. So um, he he has the physique of uh, a young man who might be playing college football, or or in the NFL, or in the major leagues. Uh, today. He was a very impressive individual physically. This is a portrait of Washington resigning his commission at the end of the Revolutionary War. He goes to Annapolis where the peripatetic Congress happened to be meeting at that moment, and um, he didn't hold on to power. He relinquished it, and a little ceremony he gives the commission back to Congress. A few months earlier, Benjamin West, who was from Pennsylvania originally but had gone to England to study art and studied and remained in England the rest of his life, was painting George III, the King of England. And George III asked West, what do you think Washington will do when the war ends? And West said, I think he will retire and go back to Mount Vernon. And the king of England said, if he does that, he will be the greatest man in the world. And that's what, in fact, he was doing uh, here. This is uh, what is sometimes called the porthole painting. It was painted by Rembrandt Peel, a son of Charles Wilson Peel, and it was painted during Washington's uh, presidency. Uh, I think the next two may be portraits by Gilbert Stuart, who sort of succeeded uh, Peel as the most popular painter of Washington during Washington's presidential years. Uh, Washington was 59 when he became president, so he's probably um, 62, 63, 64, somewhere in that uh, age range when these portraits were made. And Stuart, like most artists, tried to to gather the the inner soul of his subject to uh, put that on canvas. And Stuart said of Washington that if Washington had been born in the wilderness, he would be the strongest thing. Out there in nature, he saw Washington as a very tough individual.'m not sure it really shows through in this painting or in this painting, which was called the Lansdowne painting of washington uh as president but that was what what uh uh Stuart thought, and this I think is the last one of Washington too, as president he almost he wore civilian clothes. Uh, As president, rarely wore a military uniform, Um, often dressed in in black uh, on ceremonial occasions, sometimes wore a sword strapped to his side. Uh, The last two are pictures from the same bust of Washington, and it's a bust that was made by the French sculptor Houdon who came to Mount Vernon and Washington posed for him in 1785. And, th- and Houdon, I think, captured Washington better than anyone. If you look at, if, when I, at any rate, when I look at this bust, particularly from the two angles, let we'll me come down to the next and then I'll come back to this one. Here's the same bust, but it's from a slightly different angle. Of Washington. This is the one I like a little bit better uh, because to me, Washington really looks like a leader. As I said, I, I think it's difficult to define leadership. You know one when you see one. And here's a guy who's leading armies. He's just come home from the war and he's used to leading armies and leading men. And he's persuading men to do very difficult things, and only a leader can can do that so washington uh, I'm just going to leave that up there if that's that's okay, and go on with the talk and you can look at it and think about it as as we go along. Washington, um, as I mentioned earlier, was a civilian uh, uh, between the French and Indian War and the Revolutionary War, and a very successful planter businessman at Mount Vernon. But when the war broke out, Washington wanted to serve the public again. He wanted to soldier uh, again. He attended Congress wearing his old Virginia Regiment uniform, in fact, as if to tell Congress, I'm ready and I'm available. And Congress, of course, selected Washington, who was a fellow delegate uh, at, the fir- at the First and Second Continental Congress, to be the commander of the Continental Army. And it's interesting to read what some of the delegates to Congress who voted Washington into that position said of him Washington is a man who will brook no nonsense. Washington is a complete gentleman. Washington is virtuous and modest. Washington is clever, and I think by clever what they meant was that he was likely to be able to deal with problems and emergencies. He is a a sober, calm, steady person, or as another New Englander put it, he is no harem-starrem-swearing fellow. Uh, and as a Philadelphian, Dr. Benjamin Rush said, George Washington is so dignified that there is not a king in Europe who would not look like a valet beside him. <laughs> so Washington was chosen, and immediately upon becoming cho- uh, being chosen, Washington did two other things that I think were important in his leadership qualities. First of all, he told Congress that he would serve without pay. It was Washington's way of saying a leader, like Cato, a leader must make sacrifices, and I'm going to sacrifice by serving without pay. And then, en route to Cambridge, Massachusetts, to take command of the Continental Army, Washington paused in New York and spoke to the New York Assembly, and he told the assembly that he understood that civilian control uh, was that civilians were paramount over the military, and that he would listen to and obey his civilian masters, which he did throughout the war. Washington, as a general, I think, demonstrated his leadership qualities by working closely with Congress. It really, for the most part, was not an adversarial relationship. The members of Congress, of course, wanted to win the war. If they didn't, their necks were in a noose. So they wanted to help Washington as, as much as they could. And Washington, as I said earlier, had been a member of the Virginia Assembly for 15 years, so I think he understood legislatures and legislators and worked well and worked very patiently with them. And it was a gargantuan task because uh, Congress consisted of 13 state delegations, often with six or seven delegates uh, from each state, but each state only had one vote, so it was difficult to tell uh, where opinion was going in Congress. And for that, I think Washington relied heavily on the Virginia delegates. Uh, George Mason to some degree, Benjamin Harrison to some degree, but probably Richard Henry Lee more than any others and Washington would write them and in part they became ciphers Washington would tell them things that he wanted though he he didn't necessarily want them to tell congress that he wanted it so they would they would uh, be the kind of the point men in congress for getting things done that Washington wanted but they also kept Washington abreast of uh, feelings and attitudes uh, in Congress. And I'm not aware of a single instance through the war when a state governor or the Congress turned Washington down. There were times when they said, we just don't have the money for something like this. But in terms of asking a state governor to call to mobilize the militia for three months or whatever, I'm unaware of any of them ever turning hands down on Washington. During the first year of the war in 1776, things did not go well for for Washington in the campaign for New York. And in part, uh, things did not go well, and Washington was re- forced to retreat off of Manhattan Island and literally uh, be chased across New Jersey by the forces under Cornwallis uh, and and stayed just one step ahead of them. And in part, things did not go too well because of mistakes that Washington made. Washington was, I think, uh, a good general. uh, But he was not always a great battlefield commander. In a way, I think of Washington as somewhat like Dwight Eisenhower. Uh, Personally, I think the two greatest American leaders of the 20th century were Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Dwight Eisenhower. And I think that Eisenhower was an extraordinary general, but not a great battlefield commander. And, and Washington strikes me as being somewhat similar in that regard. Washington was a good, fairly good administrator. Uh, he did not abuse his power, so he won the confidence of the public and of public officials. And he was able to control his officers. And that was no small thing. A lot of people in Congress were frightened of, of some of those officers. And even Washington himself described the the general officers under him as men of great ambition who would sacrifice anything to promote their own personal glory and Washington won their respect and was able to control them. In 1777 Washington did not so much fail as he didn't succeed. He was not successful at the Battle of Brandywine outside of Philadelphia. In fact, was rather fortunate to, to get out of that place alive for, for his army at any rate. Uh, made some blunders during that battle. Didn't reconnoiter the battle, battlefield adequately. Was very, very slow in making some key decisions. And, and I think this rankled members of Congress more than brandywine, in the weeks that followed, Washington did almost nothing to prevent the British army from taking Philadelphia. Washington told Congress, I have a plan when the British try to cross uh, the river, the Schuylkill River to get into Philadelphia, I'm going to attack them in the rear. I can inflict heavy losses on them. But they had so outmaneuvered Washington that he was 20 miles away when they crossed uh, the Schuylkill. And many people in Congress who had to run for their lives, by the way, when the British came into Philadelphia, were upset with that. Not only had Washington not been terribly successful in 1777, but for the first time there was another American commander who had been very successful. General Horatio Gates had won a stupendous victory at Saratoga, and the British lost an army of about 8,000 men in the Saratoga campaign. So that in the aftermath of Brandywine and Saratoga, some people began to raise questions about Washington's leadership. And I'm going to read you some of the criticisms that were made by members of Congress and um, officers in the Army about Washington. This is during the 1777-78 winter, the winter of Valley Forge, the winter when Washington became an icon. Washington has permitted a spirit of carelessness and languor to pervade the Continental Army, said Benjamin Rush. Charles Thompson, who was the the Secretary of Congress throughout the war and the Articles of Confederation period, said Washington is deficient in those marks of true greatness which so preeminently characterized great soldiers in other times. A great many people criticized Washington for allowing himself to come under the pernicious influence of sycophants, particularly General Green, they said, Nathaniel Green. Um, Thomas Mifflin, who had been Washington's first aide during the war and later the commander of the Quartermaster Corps, wrote that Washington's unjustifiable arrogance has driven from the army many talented officers who would not worship the image and pay an undeserved tribute of praise and flattery to the great and powerful commander. Um, A signer of the Declaration of Independence, Abraham Clark from New Jersey, wrote, We want a general. Countless lives and dollars are yearly sacrificed to the insufficiency of our commander-in-chief. Washington has committed such blunders as would have disgraced a soldier of three months standing. And the president of Congress, Henry Lawrence from South Carolina, said in January 1778 that he had come from a meeting of about 20 congressmen and that at that meeting, Washington's opinions were treated with much indecent freedom and levity. If the congressmen were hard on Washington, some soldiers were even harder. General Charles Lee said that Washington was afflicted with what he called fatal indecision which would lose the war for America. Colonel Timothy Pickering said that Washington was weak, ignorant, and vain. Virginia's Adam Stephen said that Washington was a weak man. General John Sullivan from New Hampshire, who was later a congressman, said that Washington's army was not an army but a mob. Joseph Reed, who had been Washington's first secretary during the war and probably was his closest confidant in the first year of the war, said that he thought Washington was only fit to command a regiment. That was better than Charles Lee, who said that Washington was only fit to command a sergeant's guard. Thomas Mifflin said that Washington was totally unfit for his situation but that he might perform ably as a head clerk in a mercantile company. (laughs) And General Johann Cobb, who had served for 20 years in the French uh, French Army, said that Washington was the weakest general under whom he had served and added, somewhat prophetically, I have to say, that if Washington ever does anything sensational, he will owe it more to his good luck or to his adversary's mistakes than to his own ability. Was there a move to dump Washington? Was the so-called Conway cabal, a cabal or conspiracy of congressmen and, and officers in the Army to dump Washington, really a conspiracy? I tend to doubt it. I don't think that—I think there were congressmen who would have liked to replace Washington with (laughs) Gates, but most, I think, shrank from that uh, for a variety of reasons. In part, I think they thought it—they feared it would create a a political firestorm. They feared that it could destroy morale. After Saratoga, they thought France was on the verge of coming into the the war— and to dump Washington at that point might frighten the French away from coming into the war. But there were many positive reasons for not taking the step to dump Washington. Above all, I think those traits that I mentioned earlier, that Washington was a good administrator, that he had not misused his powers, uh, that um, Get what the other one was that? Oh, that he controlled his officers. Those three, I think, were 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 crucial in their thinking, uh, but also, in addition to to that, uh, I, I think they they saw that Washington, unlike Gates, had always had to contend with the cream of the British army. He always fought a tougher adversary than Gates had been forced to to deal with. But out of all of this comes something I think that's crucial, and it's where I've been going in all of this. Many people in Congress, none more important than Henry Lawrence of South Carolina, the president of Congress, believed in Washington, believed that he was a leader, and believed that most americans believed that washington was a leader and the, and consequently felt that washington must be kept on and so i think a conscious decision was made by the leadership in congress not just to keep washington as a leader but to make Washington an American icon. And I think that decision was made during the Valley Forge winter. Benjamin Rush said, it is a state necessity that America must have an inculpable great man and that General Washington is to be that man. And John Adams wrote, Congress agreed to blow the trumpet in concert to cover and dissemble all faults and errors, to represent every defeat as a victory and every retreat as an advancement, to make Washington popular and fashionable with all parties and all places and with all persons as a center of the Union, as the central stone in the geometric arch. That decision was made in the Valley Forge winter. Under pressure to choose between the victor of Saratoga and George Washington, who had been less successful and, in fact, had often failed on the battlefield, Congress spurned Gates and retained Washington. And as one whose life, in part, has been shaped by the fruits of the American Revolution, I rejoice in the decision that Congress made. And to return to our baseball metaphor, I think Congress hit a home run in keeping Washington as the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army. Thank you very much.